0: What's up guys, Pastor John here. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey and we believe that God has an incredible plan for your life and our hope is that tools like this sermon will help you become who he has created you to be. Now listen, in order to truly flourish and thrive like God intends for your life, it takes community. What I mean by that is we don't believe that simply by attending church online alone that you're going to be able to become every bit of who God has created you to be and who you want to be to grow spiritually, you need other people. And we would love to help you connect with other people right here at Greenhouse. True growth happens when we're rooted in a community that supports, uplifts, and walks alongside us. And so with that in mind, we would love for you to join us in person on Sundays, right here at Western High School or in micro churches throughout the week. Um, Listen, if you don't live near our church here in South Florida, please reach out to us. We would love to help you find and thrive in a local faith community near you. We're excited to partner with you as we all become passionate followers of Jesus. God bless you. We're actually going to kick off a brand new series, a mini-series this week called A Seat at the Table. Everybody say, A Seat at the Table. Seat at the table. We all like to eat, but this is not primarily about eating. It is about relationship. Now, this is a unique series. Once a year, we get to do a series all together, 100 plus churches all throughout South Florida through Church United. We do a collective sermon series because we are a collective voice representing one king, one kingdom. We all have the same boss and CEO. It's going to be the reality in heaven, so we might as well start acting on earth like it is in Hoop, there it is, y'all got it. And so we're doing this sermon series together. Obviously, different backgrounds, different churches, different denominations. Obviously, each church will do it a little bit differently. But this is a sermon series we're doing together. And here is the hope. The hope would be that in this holiday season, we would see the Capital C Church all throughout South Florida, followers of Jesus in every Christian church throughout South Florida, mobilized to intentionally love our neighbors and welcome everyone, but especially those who don't yet follow Jesus, to the table of relationship so that, in, so that we might be able to share not just our lives, but the hope of this Christmas season, the hope, the good news, the message of the gospel and the love of Jesus. That sound like a good plan? Sound like a good thing? Can you imagine what could happen in our world? So for the next few weeks, we'll be exploring and diving into a few specific table scenes that happen in the book of Luke. This morning, we're gonna be specifically looking at Luke chapter seven. So if you wanna turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter seven, we'll begin in verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, we got Sky Bible on the screen for your viewing enjoyment. The Miami Dolphins have a defense, apparently. Who would have known? Fins up on that one, so that's great. And uh, Jalen Phillips, get well very, very soon. Very, very soon, supernaturally soon. All right, Luke 36, are you ready to jump into the word, people of God? yes let's do it this is jesus he's kind of a big deal if you haven't heard of him uh he's a rabbi he's a teacher many of us say he's the messiah and jesus had been invited by some religious leaders of his time period to a dinner party the pharisees are the religious elite of the day and you'll kind of see their vibe they are pretty snarky When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now everyone would have been longing for a seat at a Pharisee's table. You've made it, you've arrived. The influencers of the day have invited you to have a seat. This would have been a big deal for most. Now a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table. So she came there with an alabaster jar. This would have been very expensive perfume. As she began to, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. How many of you were like, gross feet, right? Just figure ancient world, sweaty leather sandal feet. Yeah, this is what she's doing. When the Pharisee who had invited, now check this. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said, what does it say? To himself, He said to, oh, sorry, we have a different version. He said to himself in his own mind, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. That's kind of what everyone expects from the religious person, from the religious elite. This guy says it to himself, check this. Then Jesus answered him, freak me out. The guy says it in his mind and Jesus answers with his mouth. At this point, I don't know about the rest of y'all, I'm paying attention. If this man were really a prophet, hey, let me ask you a question about that. Jesus answers him and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, tell me, rabbi, Jesus, he, he says to Jesus. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owned him 500 denarii. This would be about uh, almost two years wages. And the other owed him 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. Or, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them do you think will love him more? Simon, this Pharisee, this religious elite replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Ding, gold star, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. He's he's talking about all the expectations for hospitality in the ancient world. You, You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, listen, don't worry about them. Your faith has saved you. Go in shalom, go in peace. Would you join me as we pray? Jesus, I am praying our little tribe here, this church family online, Guyana, in the room, that we can exit just like this woman, full of your shalom, shalom, your perfect peace. So speak to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your neighbor, give him a high five. Tell him, get ready. If you're married to him, tell him, you look great. Ma'am, babe, you look amazing. You ever been caught red handed? You ever just been like guilty? You got me? You ever, you ever had that unique phenomena? Uh, parents, you, you'll probably relate to this one. I'm not quite sure the developmental framework of when exactly this happens, but I just know it happens. At some point, as your kids are entering maturity, they realize that they can be sneaky. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Like they come to this realization wait a second, I can be sneaky. I can say one thing and do another. I can say one, like I can be, I remember, I, I, I don't quite know what developmental sector, if you're like a child psychologist, maybe you can tell me and then I'll be like, yeah, and I'll forget. But at some point they learned this thing. I remember our darling little girl, Lucia, my wife and I have two little Jew-Rican babies. I'm from a Jewish background. She's Puerto Rican, two little Jew-Rican babies. And I remember when our youngest, Lucia, learned of the sneakiness. She was in her car seat and I think Nancy might've been driving with her, and it was probably around some sort of a holiday where candy is given. I don't know whether that was Easter or Christmas or uh, you know Halloween, I don't know what it was. But there was candy involved, and Lucy was in her car seat, and Nancy starts hearing the crinkling. And, and, and when you have young children especially, you know the distinctive crinkling, it's a candy wrapper. And so Nancy's like, in the, she's like, Lucy, do you have a candy? And Lucy's like, no. And you know, as a parent, like there's no, and then there's no, the inflection says it all. But she swore she was so slick. No, and she was like, and, and, and Nancy's like, Lucy, are you doing And she's like, no, and, and so, you know, the car ride goes, and, and Nancy's driving, you know, arrive alive, and that's the focal point, and she's like, ah, you know, and we'll, we'll find out what happens when we get there. And, and then we got there, and I had to take this moment to immortalize it forever, because this is a state that we found our beloved Lucia in. These are not bodily fluids, ladies and gentlemen, freaketh, oddeth, n- uh, not. Uh, this is a half melted, I'm assuming chocolate candy that she had found in or around her car seat. She had uh, proceeded on the drive home to gobble it up and then fall asleep, gobble it up and fall asleep. And I was like, yes, you are not as sneaky as you thought. And Nancy's like, did you have candy? And she's like, no. And we're like, okay, all right. You're not saved yet, clearly. Little Lucia, now we all laugh and this is so humorous, but aren't we all, don't we all fancy ourselves to be a little bit sneakier than we actually are? Yeah, yeah. Some of you have roommates, you're like, yeah, you were not as slick as you think. I I tell this story because there's something humorous in this kind of being caught red-handed of cute little Lucia and the chocolate, but what's happening in this story is a woman caught red-handed in her sin and in her shame. Jesus gets invited to this Pharisee dinner party, to this big deal religious establishment gathering, and while they're there, this woman comes in who's living this sinful life. Apparently, everybody knows it, and Jesus intentionally uses this moment as the rabbi, as the teacher, for a lesson for not just this woman and not just this Pharisee and religious individual, but if we have ears to hear it and eyes to see it this morning for us as well. Are you ready to learn from Rabbi Jesus? All right, let's begin the scene, establish the characters. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot some of these thoughts down. Let's start with the actions of this woman. We'll jump into the passage here, and we'll jump back to verse 37. It says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. Now to establish the context in the first century, you're like, what exactly does this mean that she was a sinful woman? Well, it's saying a little bit different from what we know about everyone, right? All have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Just to get us all on the same page, how many of you are like, yeah, I'm a sinful person too? Like, okay, every human being, if you didn't raise your hand, you just lied, so congratulations, welcome to all of us, right? We, we all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's happening in this passage though is something uniquely distinct from that. This is not just saying, and entered a human being. This is saying this woman is living in some sort of an external, known, outward way in which people know she has chosen an ongoing path that is contrary to God's precepts, to his ways, to his path that he's designed for flourishing. Most commentaries and Bible scholars, though we do not know for sure, make the assumption because of some cultural nuances regarding hair and letting down hair that she most likely was either actively a prostitute or was a former prostitute. This is this woman. Now, if you ask the question, well, how would the religious dude know? That's a great question, by the way. How would he know this sinful woman's past? Ah, it's a great question, right? But we know that this woman is living in a way outside and contrary to the, the laws of God. And most likely she would have been an outsider, living in intentional shame, cast off, canceled, whatever you might say, by the religious establishment. Now, what she does is important and also bears a a sort of unpacking in first century framework. So when we think about sitting down at a dinner table, we kind of think about the, the opening slide image. We've got like big chairs, big table, and you're kind of sitting there. But in the ancient world, they did not sit like we sit. They reclined. I've got a picture of it. In the ancient world, they would have been sitting, much like this photo here, and they've got their legs kind of splayed out behind them. It would have been a way to maximize the seating space. This is still often how seating is done in the Middle East to this day. It's sort of a part of the culture, and they would have been sitting there. It maximizes the space. It minimizes the need for additional things like chairs, and you've kind of got your feet out behind you. And so what this woman does is she comes in, and she comes in in humility. She comes in and she does not make her way into the focal point of the conversation. Her hope is to remain as hidden in the background as possible, and she's sitting there working on Jesus' feet. Do you see how the picture is a little bit different here? She's not set, he's not at the table, she's like, Jesus, she doesn't make it all about her. She's trying to make this a simple act all about him. But it's a gutsy act. This woman would have known Any self-respecting Pharisee, religious elite, religious leader would have shunned this immediately and would have publicly put her to shame. How dare you touch me? She knows she is taking her life into her own hands. And yet she has decided something about Jesus that he is namely fundamentally different from the religious establishment at the moment. This is a supreme act of faith that this woman is taking. She responds in worship, she responds in humility. Most likely this alabaster jar of perfume would have represented what she had used in her profession. It would have represented her livelihood, it would have represented her inheritance, it would have represented mostly what she had. She doesn't interrupt, she stays in the background. She just cannot miss. I mean, this is the least opportune moment. This is the worst timing. This is like, I know the worship team's singing their song, but I'm gonna get up there, and I just can't help but belt it out, and I cannot sing. But I just love them so much. She does this. Now, this is powerful. This is important. This is told now for for generations upon generations. But what we see from this woman Elicits two very different responses from two very different types of people. The first one is the Pharisee's response. Now, track with me here. The Pharisee's response, I would argue, is the religious response. Whether you're talking Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, there is a generic religious response, and I would argue it is much like this Pharisee's response. Look at verse 39. This woman responds in this act of extravagant worship and generosity. She, she wipes her, his feet with her tears and she pours out this oil and perfume. Verse 39, and when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, and it shows his expectation for what spiritual, faith, religious, godly people do. If this man were really a prophet, then he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. The Pharisees' expectation for how God, and by extension, how religious people should deal with someone who is a sinful person in some sort of a sinful known life is the response, the proper response should be rejection. This is the Pharisees expectation. This is what would, what would have been largely done by not just Simon the Pharisee, but the Pharisees of that day. They would have concluded if you are distant from God, then you are distant from me and we push you away. By the way, I would argue it is the same approach that we take with religion today. This is the idea that man, you better clean your act up and get yourself together. If you you ever had a friend that you invited to church, maybe you started praying, VIP card, inviting someone to Christmas service. If you've ever had a friend say, man, you don't want me to show up in your church, that whole place will burn down. That's this right here. The assumption of religious people is God wants nothing to do with you, and until you can clean your act up and get yourself together, you better stay far away from God because if you even get close to him, he's coming for you. He's gonna get you. This is the danger of religion. We've all seen it. Many of us have been it. Let's be honest. We've experienced it. It's, it's this judgmental nastiness where often it is used much more to box others out and set people over others on some sort of a pedestal And I realize that maybe in the room online, maybe in Guyana, this is how many of you might actually view faith and religion and spirituality. And maybe you're here investigating it and you're like, man, I hope it can be different. Oh, it can. Maybe it's how you view it. Maybe more tragically, it's how you've experienced it yourself. And I am so sorry. On behalf of a pastor and a church, I am so sorry. Here's the great news for you this morning. Jesus is so different from the Pharisee. Jesus is so different from some religion that just puffs up and brings pride. Simon, the, the religious Pharisee in this story, his words in his heart reveal his attitude, not just about this woman, not just about people who don't have it together, not just about people who are trying to figure out, who are running away from God, either intentionally or just by default of their lives, but they act, his words actually reveal his heart towards Jesus himself. If he were a prophet, he would. Now check this. Simon has gone out of his way to invite Jesus into his home. Jesus is a prominent rabbi and teacher at this point. What's happening? What we see in Simon's response is that Simon is actually not worshiping Jesus for Jesus. His religion and his act of hospitality is all about him. This will preach beware of a religious approach. It can even be a seemingly in the path of God, Jewish, Christian, religious approach, where while it looks great on the outside, on the inside, it's not about God, it's all about you. This is what we see from this Pharisee. And if we're not careful, we read this story as Jesus and his interaction with this one sinful person, and that is not what is happening in the story. What is happening in the story is Jesus and his interaction with two sinful people one of them blatantly living it on the outside, the sinful woman, and one of them sneakily living it out on the inside, the sinful Pharisee. How does Jesus respond to two very differently broken, sinful people? One in their throwing away of God's laws and one in their perversion of God's laws. And if you want to dig in even a little further, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, how would God deal with something like that? This is where it gets really beautiful and paradigm shifting. Number one is a Pharisee's response. Let's take a look at Jesus' response. We'll pick up in verse 40. Remember, this Pharisee says in his own heart, Man, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know what's going on. Translation I can do this religious, I could do this life thing much better than this Jesus joker can. If he were really, then he would know. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I got a story for you. Let me tell you something. He goes on to tell him this story about the two debts and one person who had a massive debt and the other one who had a small debt and they were both forgiven and and he's trying to help Simon find himself in the story. And I love this. And then he turned toward the woman. He tells a story to Simon, but the first thing he does is he turns toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? In the ancient world, women in general in the broader culture would have been seen as second, t- second or third tier or less citizens. And especially a woman who has chosen a sinful lifestyle by the religious elite. No one, the only reason they would be seen is to be shunned and Jesus stops the Pharisee in his track and says, hey, listen, do you see her? I need you to see her. He said, do you see this woman? I came into your house And you did not give me any water for my feet. What would have been customary for a host in the ancient world is to have typically the lowliest servant uh, go about washing the guest's feet. Jesus as an honored guest and prominent rabbi teacher should have at the very least been given this honor and yet he was denied it by Simon because once again, Simon's act of religion was not about God, it was about him. He said, you didn't even give me water for my feet, Simon. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And then he keeps going. He said, Simon, you, you didn't even give me a kiss. In, in the ancient world, in Middle Eastern culture, it's, it's a kiss. One cheek, two cheeks, but it's some sort of an acknowledgement. He so said, Simon, you didn't even give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time she entered, has not stopped kissing. And She's not kissing my face, Simon. She's kissing my feet. And then Jesus continues. He says, Simon, it would be customary for for an honored guest to give some sort of an oil, an anointing oil. It symbolizes the presence of God, especially for a rabbi, a teacher. He said, Simon, you did not even put oil on my head. It would be fragrant smelling. It would be like giving your guest a little bit of cologne. You want, the, you want the essence of this positive aroma to pervade the entire dining while you're there with them. It's just this loving, generous expression of care and devotion. And once again, it was not about devotion to Jesus because Simon's devotion was to himself and his status. He said, Simon, you didn't even put oil on my head, but, but this woman, she poured perfume on my feet. And then he drops a bomb that nobody was expecting. He says, therefore I tell you her, and he just, he lays it out clearly, many sins. This is the problem, by the way, of religion versus the way of Jesus. Either we go super hard on the Pharisee side of things and we cancel everybody and we shame everybody. And we say, man, no one, uh, how how do you deal with someone who's struggling? Man, you make them feel it. You shame, you make them feel it. Like shame is gonna motivate someone to flourish. It never works. Or we go on the other side of things and we're like, no, it's fine, it's all good. Everything's fine, We're, we're we're all sinners, which is true but we overdose on it. Well, we're all, uh, and, and we kind of get to this point where, man, it really doesn't matter. We either take people's flaws and we hold it against them to their detriment, or we pretend that there are no flaws at all to their detriment. What Jesus does is fundamentally different. He acknowledges the present while giving hope for the future. He says her sins, to be clear, Simon, which are many, have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven a little loves a little. Then Jesus turned to her and said, your sins are forgiven. (sighs) I can only imagine, and we see it a little bit later, the response of the rest of these Pharisees who were gathering at this dinner party. They're seated around this table, and what they watch is this prominent rabbi Jesus throwing his reputation, in their minds at least, to the wind, throwing his reputation in the trash can. Jesus responds to this act of worship and generosity from this known bad reputation sinful woman, and instead of rejecting her, Jesus accepts her into his table of relationship. Jesus sees her. In fact, Jesus ensures that everyone else pauses to see her as well. Remember, she's in the background. She's working on his feet. Some people, I'm sure, would have been cognizant of it, especially the people around Jesus. Most likely, the Pharisee would have been near him as Jesus was the supposed honored guest. But other people might have had no idea. And Jesus says, stop the script. I need you to see her. He pauses. He sees her. He pauses so everyone else can see her. Then he validates her act of worship and devotion. And he offers her a seat at the table. He offers her the longing of every human heart, whether we realize it or not. He offers her forgiveness. This is often preached in kind of a, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Some of us in this room, we've experienced this. And my prayer all week long is that it would be amazing in our hearts all over again. But there's something incredible about Jesus that he does that is much less anticipated. You would imagine that Jesus says, man, you jerk of a Pharisee, trying to throw people's you know, sin and failure in their face like you don't have some of your own. How do you know about this woman's past? Hmm. You would imagine that Jesus honors one and shames the other, but Jesus is so, so much better than that. Remember, we're dealing with two sinners in the story. And what Jesus tries to do for the Pharisee is the same thing he does for this woman. He tries to give him a rescue mission. He tells him a story. The point of the story is to reflect back. He's using this woman as a mirror for this Pharisee to see, hey buddy, you care about religion, but you care about you and you don't care about me and you don't care about God. But you can, but you should. He actually pauses in the moment and what Jesus could have done is the guy could have been like, oh man, this woman. And Jesus could have been like, I know your thoughts and you are horrible, Pharisee. What do you mean I didn't? I know, you just thought. And he could have just put him on blast and moved on with the story. He doesn't do that. He's like, Simon, I got a story for you, buddy. Okay. He makes him the focal point of the attention of the conversation. And he tells him the story. He pauses. He, He wants to help the Pharisee who is, Equally deceived in his own self-righteousness, he wants to help the Pharisee see himself clearly. He's deceived. He's not in touch with what's happening in his life. And so Jesus tells him a story, hoping to make things clear so that this Pharisee can be rescued, forgiven, and saved as well. And this is where the gospel is fundamentally different from any other religious approach, from any other framework, from any other thing on the planet. What Jesus does here is he accepts the repentant sinner. He accepts the worship of the repentant sinner, the sinful woman, and then he goes ahead and invites and encourages response from the unrepentant, prideful sinner because Jesus loves and wants them both. Man. And he ends with this sort of mic drop moment. Simon, I just going to toss something out for your consideration those who have been forgiven little they only love a little but those who have been forgiven much they love so much and don't you dare shame them for doing it now what jesus is doing is good rabbi speak here there was a rabbinical technique in the ancient world jesus was an expert rabbi a jewish teacher it's called remez it means hint What rabbis would do is they would start a verse hoping that you would finish it. For God so loved the world that he, boom. You just, that's what they would do. They would do this stuff to bring up memory recall because they could shorten and condense their sermons. You're like, you, that's a good idea, Pastor John. You should try that. No, I'm not going to try. Um, they would do this to try to get people and they would engage. You know, it's, it's good educational pedagogy and you're trying to engage prior knowledge and all this kind of stuff. So they would do this. What Jesus is hoping as a great, genius Jewish teacher, what Jesus is hoping his audience would do is ask the follow-up question. Those who are forgiven little, love a little. And those who are forgiven much, love much. What Jesus is hoping his audience would do is ask the question, well, who has been forgiven much? Answer, me, you, us, humans, sinful women, and sinful Pharisees. Who's been forgiven much? And all week long, I've been praying and asking God, Lord, would you give us the gift of divine illumination? Would you help us see ourselves clearly in light of this story? Would you help us find ourselves in the story? Some of you are the sinful woman. And what I mean by that anecdotally is you have been living a life of outward rebellion against God and everybody knows it. You're like, Jesus, by the way, that was my story. Jesus, you're good. At some point, maybe I'll give it a try, but I got this. I'm gonna do life on my own. I'm gonna figure out my own way. And and it's very clear and apparent to people, you are not a follower of Jesus, a follower of God, his ways or his precepts. You have spent a lifetime rebelling against God like it is your full-time job. Maybe you're not a prostitute, but it's like it's your full-time job. You're living in outward rebellion against God. And then he rescued you. And you remember that moment where you had tried everything in your own power and it wouldn't work and then Jesus stepped in and you did not deserve forgiveness, mercy, love, grace, none of that. You knew what you were doing and yet he stepped in in his mercy, grace, and love and what, because you've been forgiven so much, you love, love so much. Some of us are that sinful woman. And others of us in the room online, Guyana, we're that sinful Pharisee. We have equally spent time in our lives rebelling against God, but in contrast to the sinful woman, it has not been an outward rebellion, it has been an inward rebellion of pride, cynicism, judgmentalism, where you're hoisting your religious accolades over other people, where your spirituality, your your religious approach is actually not about God, it's about you. Some of us spent a lifetime in that way, rebelling against God. Just in that different way. And then he rescued you. He came to you in your self-righteousness and showed you your need and showed you your heart and showed you your sin and he stepped in and saved the day and what you could not accomplish on your own with righteousness like filthy rags, he came and he forgave and he made you clean and he washed you white and he showed you you definitely got a testimony. It's just a different type of testimony, but you have been rescued by the grace of God and you have been forgiven much, so you love much. The moral of the story is if you are a human being if you are a follower of Jesus especially, you have been forgiven much, so we all love much. The moral of the story is we must realize that for every single person, especially for every single Christian and follower of Jesus, we are in the same boat as the characters in this story, sinful and broken, desperately in need of rescue, But rather than rejecting us, like Simon the Pharisee expected, like religion almost demands, rather than rejecting us, Jesus welcomed us to a seat at the table. Relationship, forgiveness, mercy, grace. God demonstrated his love for us by welcoming us to his table of relationship. This is what he did. God demonstrated his love for you and I, for us, by welcoming us to his table of relationship. And here's what I'm praying in, the, in this first installment of this mini-series that we're doing all together with churches all across South Florida. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot it down or snap a picture of the slides behind me. First, I'm praying that you would put intentional energy and effort this week into remembering your story. It's, it's like spiritual ADD is like the malady that affects our mindset. Like we're, we're all of us in some ways are like, we once were blind and now we squint, right? We're like, I kind of see, but I forget. And I'm so prone to wander. Like, remember your story. What I mean by that is remember when you first believe. If you're a follower of Jesus, remember, think back a few weeks, a few months, a few years, a few decades, remember when you first believe, remember where you were, remember how he forgave you, remember how he welcomed you into relationship with God and a seat at his table by his grace, not of your own works or efforts, lest anyone boast. Remember your story. Number two, when you remember your story, thank God for your story. Approach God with thanksgiving. Enter his gates, scripture says, with thanksgiving, his courts, with praise. What do I thank him for? My life is a mess and my job is a struggle and I think my boss is demon possessed and everything's crazy and my teacher has unrealistic demands. Thank him that you are alive and not going to hell. That's a good thank God for, her. amen? Thank him that he rescued you, that he redeems you, that he continues to be patient with you in the day in and the day out. Thank him that he's gonna work all things for good to those who love him. Thank God for your story. Ask God, number three, for help. If you're like, man, Pastor John, I, I could never, do, if you knew my struggle, and we all have different struggle and different challenges and different things that come up, but if your heart is not overwhelming with gratitude and love, then you're missing the point of your story. You've been forgiven so much. The only approach that I, that you, that we could have if we really think about it. I mean, if we really step back and yeah, there's challenges and there's heartbreak and there's all sorts of difficult things that happen, but think about where you were and where you could be without him. And the tinge of challenge and difficulty and sadness, like it's, it's part of your story, but man, his grace is so present. And if you don't see it, ask him for help. Say, God, open my eyes to see it more clearly. God, give me a deeper understanding of of my sin, of, of who I was, of where I would be. Like, God, remind me. Because so often there's a tragic pipeline where sinful women that were rescued become sinful Pharisees that think they're the rescuers if we don't stay in touch with the grace of God in our story. You guys all realize this, right? Like the sinful Pharisee didn't start the sinful Pharisee. He probably started at some point, maybe not as egregiously, I don't know what kind of family he was from, if he was raised in church, synagogue. I don't know at what what age he declared Messiah to be the Lord of his life, I don't know how that happened, but at some point there was an affinity towards God to some degree, and yet life became all about him. Ask God for help, ask God to give you a degree of appreciation of the depth of your sin and the depth of his grace. Next week, we're gonna build on this conversation. Next week, we're gonna be talking about the the momentous opportunity we have in this holiday season during the month of December, during this Christmas season, to be a source of hope and light, to offer faith, hope, and love to our neighbors as Jesus is literally in people's front yards. Like it's the easiest time to have a conversation about Jesus ever. Hey, I saw the little baby Jesus on your front yard. What do you think about that? Boom, you're in a gospel conversation. Like in the easiest moment and maybe all of the year, we might have especially as americans to offer people a seat at the table to remind them of the grace of god the goodness of god to remind them that contrary to many of our cultures thinking we're like the Pharisees that decide man god wants nothing to do with people like that god wants nothing to do with people like me what do you mean humans who are lost and broken yeah he wants everything to do with people like you because he wanted everything to do with a person like me That's where we're going, but listen to me. Before you can effectively communicate and share the love of God in a way that is authentic and honest, which by the way, culture has a great meter for assessing when that is not the case. Before we can ever share about the love of God with other people, you cannot communicate with others what you are not deeply in touch with yourself. And so where this conversation must begin, before we talk about the amazing opportunity we have to to give the good news, the hope of this season, you guys know this, the holidays are an amazing time for some and heartbreaking for others. Anxiety, depression, suicide, they skyrocket during the holiday season. Why? Because we're deeply in touch with the fact that we might be completely and utterly alone, but we know we're not. But before we can communicate that truth, we have to be deeply in touch with it ourselves we need to realize, we need to embrace how profoundly broken and lost we are. And yet how deeply we're loved. I was reminded this week of a story I read, man, this had to be years ago. And uh, it's of this young boy named Ted. I'll read it to you. Ted Stallard in his early years seemed seemed to many to be a lost cause. Turned off by school, very sloppy in appearance, expressionless, unattractive. Even his teacher, Miss Thompson, enjoyed bearing down her red pen as she placed X's besides his many wrong answers. However, if she had studied his records more carefully, she would have seen a bigger, tragic story. First grade, it read, Ted shows promise with his work and his attitude, but he has a poor home situation. Second grade, Ted could do better His mother is seriously ill. He receives little help from home. Third grade, Ted is a good boy, but he's too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Ted is very slow, but well-behaved. His father shows no interest whatsoever. That year at Christmas time, the children piled their elaborately wrapped gifts on their teacher's desk. Ted brought one too. His was wrapped in brown paper held together with scotch tape when Miss Thompson opened the gift. As the children crowded around to watch, out of Ted's package fell a gaudy rhinestone bracelet with half of the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume. The children, as they often do, began to snicker. But Miss Thompson silenced them by splashing some of the perfume on her wrists and letting them smell it. She put the bracelet on too. At the end of the day, after all the children had left, Ted waited and came by her desk and said, "Miss Thompson, you smell just like my mother. And the bracelet looks real pretty on you too. I'm so glad you like my presence. Then he left. Miss Thompson got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her and to change her attitude. After the holiday break, the children were greeted by a reformed teacher one committed to loving each of them, especially the slow ones, especially the difficult ones, especially Ted. Surprisingly, or, or maybe not so surprisingly, Ted began to show great improvement. He actually caught up with most of the students in his class and even passed a few. Time came and went. Ms. Thompson heard nothing from Ted for a very long time. Then one day, she received this note. Dear Ms. Thompson, I wanted you to be the first to know I will be graduating second my class love Ted she didn't hear anything and another four years later another note arrived dear Miss Thompson they just told me I would be graduating first in my class I wanted you to be the first to know the university has not been easy but I liked it love Ted and again four years later dear Miss Thompson as of today I am Theodore Stallard MD how about I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month, the 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Ms. Thompson attended that wedding, sat where Ted's mother would have sat. And as she sat beaming, she watched the face of a young man transformed by compassion. And I thought about this story and all I could think about was our story and more particularly my story. Because the moral of my story is I'm a Ted Stallard. I was and still am in many times a mess. And yet God looked at my issues and he looked at my pain and he looked at my challenges and he looked at all of the things that people might've neglected or rejected. And in response to my pain, he did not reject me. He embraced me. And he met us in our pain. And he looked at our story of betrayal and hurt and wounds and brokenness and where the rest of the world was tempted to say, man, let's just leave them to their own devices. He stepped in and met us in our pain and he allowed himself, listen to us, in the midst of our brokenness, God so loved us, Jesus so loved us, was so motivated by compassion that he actually came down and allowed himself to be broken so that we could be made whole. Friends, there's no one like Jesus. There's no one who's loved you like this. There's no one who's responded to your hurt, wounds, brokenness, and pain like the Son of God has or like the Son of God will. There's no one like Jesus. And he invites us to his table of relationship, not because we're pure, not because we're holy, not because we're religious, not because we're dutiful, not because we have it all together, but because he is merciful and kind and loving, because he is good. And as we approach this Christmas season and, and you got baby Jesus all over the front yard and we've got the, the holiday season, I want to remind you that the good news of the Christmas season is not just about God, although it is about God, let's get on the same page there. And it's not just about a God who came, although that's amazing, incredible. It's not just about God and it's not just about a God who came. The reason this entire month, this Advent season is worth dedicating an entire month to the focal point is about a God who came for you. sees you like this woman with a past something's probably victim of circumstances many things of her own choosing just like you and I Jesus made sure to stop the whole dinner party and see her but not to point her out or shame her but to welcome her into relationship so we're going to take a moment here and we're going to pause in remembrance of this good news this gospel good news and worship. And we're gonna do that by taking communion together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get ready to take communion. Lord, I'm asking that right now, not by might, power, or articulation, but by your spirit, you would move on our hearts. And God, would you step in and remind us of our need? Would you remind us of your grace, of your mercy, of your love? Would you remind us of your goodness? And as we take communion, Lord, would you do something powerful? In our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.
1: You know, Pastor John just talked about having a seat at the table. We're about to take communion, and communion literally is... An invitation to have a seat at the dinner table with Jesus. You know, I was listening to the message and I don't know what you thought about that or how you saw yourself. Some of us, we just feel like that woman that everybody else refers to as the sinful woman. Or maybe you've been, you're here, you've been in church for a long time, you feel like that. you've just been around but going through the motions like the Pharisees, still struggling. But you know what the good news is? Regardless of where you've been, what your past has been, or even what you're today, how you woke up this morning, Jesus still offers you a seat at the table. And communion is the time where we just take a moment to reflect it symbolizes literally sitting with Jesus, having dinner with Jesus. You know, when Jesus had dinner with his disciples, so much, several of them came from different backgrounds. You know, some, some, one of them was a tax collector. Some were like the Pharisees. But regardless of where you've come from, where I've come from, this is the moment where we sit at the table with Jesus. I want us to take, a, you know, just a couple minutes and reflect on that. Think about just being there with Jesus and remembering, remembering His grace. You know, Scripture says uh, that He has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's how beautiful His love and His grace is. He's not looking at you and looking at me and and thinking of what, what we used to be, where we used to be. I want us to remember that. Remember where He called you from. Remember how far He's brought you. Even if you're still going through a process, just sit for a moment and think about it. Remember. And the one that's called you is not going to leave you where he found you. Right? He said in in the book of Luke, he said, I'm the bread of life. Anyone that comes to me will never be hungry again. Anyone that shows up will never be thirsty again. That one that called you is able to keep you and to satisfy you. I just want us to remember You know, here at Greenhouse, we don't require that you be a member of this church to partake in communion. We just will ask that you've accepted that call, you've heard that call, you've accepted it, and you're a member of the church. That just means that you're a follower of Jesus. You've responded to that call. And if you're here and you don't feel worthy or you feel like you're broken, just know that this bread is not a bread of condemnation. Jesus is not calling us to condemnation. He's not looking for Pharisees that have been, you know, super successful Christians uh, to participate in communion. He's calling you just as you are. One of my favorite scriptures is in the book of 1 Peter. He says his divine power has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. A different version says all that we need for life, And for godliness. Before we take this communion, just sit back as you think and reflect on God's mercies. Just ask God, is there any way, any area of my life where I'm still struggling? You know, I'm still going through the motions, still believing God. I just feel like, after so many years, I still feel like that Pharisee. Just take a moment. God says he's giving you everything that you need to live a godly life. Just take a moment and say a prayer Ask God, open up your hands if you want As a sign of, just a sign of humility before him Say, Lord, I receive of you I receive of you, help me If you're here and you want to participate and you don't yet have the communion elements, you can put your hands up and the ushers will make sure you have one. Again, if you're just here and you're checking out, you're not a believer yet or you're still trying to investigate Christianity, you don't have to feel any pressure. Um, But if you're a family and you love the Lord, feel free to join us as we take communion. I'm going to read from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, 23 and 20, to 26. He says, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together even as we remember his body that's broken for us. Verse 25. Lord Jesus, we we humble ourselves before you, Lord. We know we don't deserve this love. We don't deserve this grace. But you've given it to us anyways. Lord, we are like that woman. We've been labeled as sinners. And many of us, we're like just that Pharisee. We've been around, but yet we fail to recognize your grace and your mercy. But Jesus, we come before you this morning. We come in humility, Lord. We ask, O Lord, according as your divine power has given us, Lord, we receive of you grace to live godly lives. Grace, O God. Not just to go through the motions and to pretend, but grace to live for you, O God. I pray, Lord, that you pour out your power, your presence, and your spirit upon each one that has participated or even observed this morning. Pour out your grace. Lord, as we go through this season, this holiday season of remembering, remembering Jesus, the one that came that we will have life. We pray that this life will be our experience. God, that you will help us to experience you and experience this life. Life in abundance. Have your will, Lord Jesus. Be glorified. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.